Well, good morning, Lakeside family. It is good to meet together again in this way. Again, whether you are joining us online through Facebook or on the website or through YouTube, or whether you are going to be with us um, on Sunday morning and gathered together as the fellowship and the body of believers uh, in Halliburton at Lakeside. And uh, it's just good to be able to open up God's word and be able to consider the things that he would teach us this day. And uh, I must admit, it has been a glorious week. I'm just sitting out here on my porch, as I usually do when I record these things. And the colors are bursting out all around me. And it is very good uh, to be in God's creation this week. Although I see that there is rain coming. And so next week may not be quite so nice. Uh, but we need the rain too. Um, we're continuing in our series uh, called The Five Ones. And it is five uh, common core disciplines of the Christian life, and I shouldn't even call them disciplines. They are the they are the five common outworkings of our satisfaction in Christ, and the five common uh, outpouring uh, of a life that is lived in alignment and walking after Christ. And so, as we continue this series, we're looking at uh, first of all, we looked at one gathering for worship, and then we looked last week at one time for prayer. And now we are going to look at uh, the Christian practice of gathering together in small groups um, in people's homes uh, and apart from the larger gathering. And so since we're going to talk about small groups, I obviously brought with me a bag of Oreos. That's right. We're going to talk about small groups in terms of Oreos. Now we're talking about Oreos not just because we should thank Nabisco and Sam Porcello, the inventor, for providing the ultimate dippable cookie sandwich, but because an Oreo cookie is actually gives us a picture of how small groups are meant to work in the Christian life. And all through the New Testament we see small groups at work. Jesus chose 12 disciples, the Apostle Paul had Luke and Timothy and Barnabas and Julia and Phoebe and Titus and Euodia and a whole bunch of other apostles as well beside him who labored with him in ministry and who also held each other accountable. And the book of Acts shows us the members of the early megachurches of various cities. Remember, there was over 3,000 in the, in the church of Jerusalem on the first day. They met together in each other's homes in smaller gatherings. And this was something that was repeated in city after city after city as the church grew. We see it in Acts 2.46, and in 16.15, and in 28.7, and in 1 Corinthians 16.19, and in Philemon 2, and other places. As the church grew, Christians regularly, as they followed Christ and were satisfied in Him, gathered together in each other's homes in small group, apart from the large Lord's Day gathering. 
But today what I want to do is I want to look specifically at the letter to the Hebrews and consider why Christians so naturally fell into this pattern of behavior, of meeting one another in small groups, of sharing food, of praying, of serving and encouraging one another. When we come to believe in Jesus and trust in him, our hearts and minds are opened up to the truth of God and his promises and our salvation in Jesus Christ and all that God has in store for us. When, when all of that comes into our life, it would be great that we could just charge out into the world on fire, full of faith, fully sanctified, free from our flesh, selflessly ministering and sharing Christ with everyone we encounter without needing everyone, anyone else. I mean, why couldn't we just be saved and then immediately independent? But the reality of our life here on this earth is that we're still part of the fleshly kingdom. Even as we've been looking at the inbreaking of the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God that Jesus has brought with him as we've gone through the Gospel of Matthew, that kingdom is still inbreaking into the world. It's inaugurated, but it is not fully realized. And so we still live in this kingdom as well. And God is accomplishing his purposes in us while we are still, as the letter to the Romans says, in jars of clay. So God has given us these promises. He has given us this new life. We are citizens of his new kingdom, but he's accomplishing these things in us while we are here. And God intends to do these things in our lives in such a way that we are not independent, pretending we don't need any help from anybody else, nor in isolation, cut off from encouragement and support and mercy. God intends to fulfill all his promises in an interdependent community filled with other believers. And so our problem that the writer of Hebrews identifies as Christians very early on and then provides a solution for is that our foolish hearts tend to wander. This is one of the reasons we need small groups. This is one of the reasons we need to gather together weekly or bi-weekly in each other's homes or be in relationship with each other on a regular basis because we tend to be drifters. Again, looking at Hebrews, after opening up the letter with a chapter describing the promises of God and the glory of Jesus and the good news of our salvation by him, the writer of Hebrews then says in chapter 2, verse 1, For this reason we must pay clo much closer attention to what we have heard, so that we do not drift away from it. And what he's talking about there is the gospel. So this is one of the key reasons this letter is written to Christians. He says it right up front. We have to pay close attention to what we've heard so we do not drift away from it. Because the writer knows that his fellow Christians are aware of who Jesus is. He knows that they're saved. They know the gospel. They have a friendship with Christ. They know the promises of God. But the writer wants to show them how not to drift away from the gospel they've heard and believed. So this is a letter about not drifting. So because the reality of the Christian life is that we're always tempted to not treasure Jesus as we should, but instead treasure other things in our life, we are tempted not to see the preciousness of the promises of God, but to put our hope in lesser things. In other words, we tend to drift away from Jesus and God's promises, and that's why this book was written, one of the reasons it was written, and why it was written and the way it was written urges us towards the kind of small group relationships where we can remind each other and exhort each other about the promises of God and our true identity in Christ. And so this is why I immediately thought of an Oreo cookie when I started writing this sermon. It's how the book of Hebrews was written. 
Let's just look briefly at a simple outline of the book of Hebrews, and then we'll focus on one or two of its clearest encouragements. And I just want you to see this Oreo effect of small groups, because I think if I can subconsciously associate small groups and life groups with Oreos, then you will be more likely to want to participate. So let's look at an Oreo again and see how Hebrews is an Oreo cookie. So here's the pattern of Hebrews. You start out at the bottom in chapter 1 with the bottom layer of the cookie, and it's a chapter about doctrine and promises, who Jesus is and the fact that we are saved and the gospel of who Jesus is and our salvation in him. And then in the first half of chapter 2, we get an encouragement to fellowship and to be spurring one another on together. And then in the end of chapter 2 and into chapter 3, we get more doctrine and more promises. And then at the end of chapter 3, we have another encouragement for fellowship. Then chapters 4 and 5 are more doctrine about the promises of God and who Jesus is. And then chapter 6 is another encouragement to fellowship. And then we have chapter 7 to 10, and that's more doctrine of who Jesus is and what he means to the church and how he's fulfilling promises. And then chapter 10, in the second half of chapter 10, we have the top part of the cookie, which is another level, another encouragement to be in fellowship. And then you have chapters 11 and 12, which is more doctrine and more promises, more truth about who God is. And then in chapter 13, the top layer of the cookie is another encouragement for fellowship. And so the book of Hebrews goes back and forth between doctrine and fellowship, doctrine and fellowship, doctrine and fellowship. And so between the two layers of this Oreo cookie of a letter, in the middle, what I think the writer of Hebrews wants to squeeze out is a Christian life properly walked. So the creamy filling in the middle is the Christian life that's built on the foundation of doctrine and truth, but is contained by and constrained by fellowship and encouragement together. And so that's what we're going to look at. We're going to look at a few of these examples where we see doctrine, which is then reinforced and encouraged in fellowship, and the Christian life then is constrained, and the Christian life then is lived out in the middle. So that's the pattern. That's what we want to see, and that's the truth and the beauty and the reality of doctrine combined with fellowship and hospitality to be a sort of sandwich, a tasty sandwich that conforms the good outflowing of living the Christian life. So let's see it in a couple of places. So in the rest of chapter 2, we started in chapter 2 where he talked about, you know, meeting together. And then, so the rest of chapter 2 and chapter 3, the writer goes back now to explaining the promises of God or the doctrinal truth that we believe. For example, he's explaining that the world is subject to Jesus. And he talks about the good news that Jesus died to defeat death for everyone. Hebrews 2, 8-9 says this, In putting everything under him, God left nothing that is not subject to him. Yet at present we do not see everything subject to him, But we see Jesus, who is made a little lower than the angels, now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. So everything is subject to Jesus, even though, as I said, we don't see it come to fulfillment perfectly yet, but everything is in control of Jesus. Everything is subject to him. Everything is under his control. And he's crowned with glory because he suffered death and he tasted death for everyone to defeat death. So that is an incredible teaching, and there's more to it than that. But after laying out these promises and talking about this doctrinal truth of the reality in Christ, the writer then comes right back in Hebrews 3, and he says this, because this is true, in Hebrews 3, 12 to 13, 
See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. But encourage one another daily, as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. You see? So the writer says, here is something true. Here is a promise of God. Here is a reality of Jesus. But the writer knows that we wander. He knows that we drift. And so he says it again. He says, watch you don't turn away from this, but be encouraging one another daily so that you're not tricked by sin. He's saying, be in fellowship, be in contact with each other, even daily, to make sure that you don't drift away from this. You are meant, Christian brother and sister, to be living side by side, close enough and transparent enough to guard each other from sin, daily even. I'll settle for weekly. For most of us, if we can get together with a larger group or a small group in our home once a week, that's great. But there are seasons in our life, as you know, and there are seasons with certain brothers and sisters that we walk alongside of where our time is spent together daily. There have been seasons when I have walked together with another elder or another leader daily confronting an issue in the church or an issue in our lives. And so sometimes we're just ministering alongside each other every single day for a season in order to hold each other up and encourage one another and move ourselves and others forward in the truth. Okay, so let's see another one of these patterns. In Hebrews chapter 7 to 10, the writer is laying down more doctrinal truth about Jesus and the promises of God. And in chapter 7 to 10, he's explaining how Jesus is our high priest, and he's a greater high priest than any high priest that has come before. And as our high priest, he is the mediator between us and God, and he's the overseer of a better covenant. So he is, we have a better relationship through Jesus as our high priest than Israel did with their human high priests. Uh, it talks about how the old law is dead, and with the old law being dead, its sacrifices and temple and altar and priests and all of that is passed away, and the new covenant has come with Jesus and the cross. And the writer of Hebrews writes this. He says, But he became a priest with an oath when God said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. Because of this oath, Jesus has become the guarantee of a better covenant. And of course, the writer goes on to write a lot more than that, but he's outlining the promise of God that Jesus is our guarantee that if we put all of our hope in Jesus as our high priest, as our mediator between us and God, then God promises we will be forgiven our sins and we will spend eternity with him. And that is amazing doctrine. That is amazing truth. It is staggering. That's the bottom wafer of the Oreo. That's the truth that our life is built on. But then the writer knows that we are foolish wanderers, that we are drifters. And so on the other side of this doctrine of God, God's covenant, he comes back to add another layer of fellowship and encouragement. So right after that, he says in Hebrews 10, 23 to 25, he says, let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. So he says it again. Here's the truth, but the context is community to live it out in the Christian life. So you see it again. You see the bottom cookie is the doctrine, the top cookie is fellowship and community together on a regular basis. Don't give up meeting together, but encourage and spur one another on. 
and you get that nice, creamy, tasty filling of the Christian life walked and lived rightly between those two wafers. But if we don't have the promises and the doctrine of God underneath it all, and the regular fellowship and involvement of other believers constraining us on the other side, then the Christian life without those two wafers can just become indistinct and uncontrolled and unformed and kind of a wandering, melting mess. And I get at this point that my analogy is starting to break down, but the center of the Oreo cookie really needs the truth and the fellowship to constrain it, to make it that tasty sandwich. The writer of Hebrews has an aim, which is to give shape and conformity to our lives as Christians. And his method is truth and promises and assurance from scripture on one hand, and then having believers meeting together and fellowshipping together and being connected to each other regularly to encourage each other in those truths. And what emerges is that faithful Christian experience of life. Okay, so one more, I'm going to do one more bigger text where we can see how this whole Oreo effect works together in the Christian life, okay? So this is Hebrews 13, verses 1 to 7, and it'll kind of show us the whole thing. Keep on loving one another as brothers and sisters. Do not forget to show hospitality to strangers, for by so doing, some people have shown hospitality to angels without knowing it. Continue to remember those in prison as if you were together with them in prison, and those who are mistreated as if you yourselves were suffering. Marriage should be honored by all and the marriage bed kept pure, for God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. Keep your lives free from the love of money and you will be content with what you have because God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. And so we say with confidence, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? Remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Okay, so here's the setup. In chapters 11 and 12, the writer's gone through another cycle of doctrine about the promises of God, talking about the faith of the forefathers and the better covenant established on the mountain of Jerusalem versus the old law, which was established on the mountain of Sinai. And that's really rich doctrinal reality, comparing Jerusalem uh, to Sinai, comparing Christ to the law. But now in chapter 13 is a description of the Christian life filled out, lived out. It's the, it's the description of the Christian filling of the Oreo cookie. It's loving one another, showing hospitality to strangers, caring for those who are prisoners, literally and figuratively, prisoners to sin, prisoners in bondage to addiction, prisoners bound in poverty, to those that are abused or mistreated or suffering from broken relationships, which could be physical or emotional. So the we're remembering people who are prisoners and maybe right now we're remembering people who are prisoners so to speak in their own home even though we can't meet together just as these disciples couldn't meet with each other all the time because some of them were literally imprisoned we have people that are imprisoned and paul says don't forget those that are imprisoned don't forget those that you don't see regularly reach out to them remember them but he's also talking about keeping marriages healthy staying sexually pure fleeing from greed and worldly riches and idolatry, rehearsing the gospel and remembering the teaching that you've received. So as you go through this text, as you go through this paragraph, notice here the issues at stake that the writer of Hebrews is talking about are all real life issues. 
The writer is talking about money and sex and marriage and hard relationships and entrapment to sin and bondage. And he's also talking about community and belonging and caring for each other and love for strangers. And the underpinning of the expectations of this Christian life that the writer is describing, the underpinning of that is the truth that we know about God. God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. And so we say with confidence, the Lord is my helper, I will not be afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? You see, it's that truth that we then live out in community with each other for that pure Christian life. But those truths are worked out in communities of love. Keep on loving one another as brothers and sisters, he says. Because here's what the writer knows. As we actually live as Christians, the storms of life can knock us off the promises of God. And the pleasures of this world can lure us away from the satisfaction that we should have in God and in Jesus Christ. And the devil tempts us away from the promises of God. So the solution holding on to those promises and making those promises real in our life, because God uses means to accomplish his ends, and the means that God uses to keep us on track with those promises and with our Christian life is not isolated heroism. It's not us living as monks in solitary life, but it's small groups of believers caring for each other, ministering together, learning together, walking together, and pointing each other to God's promises again and again and again in all these areas of our life. And so this is the importance why the writer of Hebrews keeps talking about truth at the bottom layer and then circling back again and again to talk about community and sharing these things with each other. And he's not talking about church. He's not saying go listen to Paul preach or sing together in a big group. He's talking about living life in community with your closest neighbors in Christ. This is groups of maybe a dozen people or ten people. So at Lakeside Church, this has been our key focus, one of the many things, one of our key, key things that we emphasize. It's been in every healthy church for 2,000 years. It's how we aim to do ministry together and to take spiritual care of each other. So as you gather with us on Sunday or as you, you know, gather in this way once a week for worship, what the writer of Hebrews would say is, as an apostle or as a disciple, what you say, what, what he would say is, Pastor Paul and the elders can't be your only spiritual guides. Pastoral staff and elders are not meant to be your sole source of discipleship. My aim and our goal in the larger context is to equip healthy leaders of small groups that function in household meetings where we can love each other the way verse 1 says and that we are there to fight for each other the fight of faith in very practical and everyday ways the way verses 2 to 6 say. So, What that means is at Lakeside, if you choose not to be in some kind of small group, then you're choosing to step away from the ordinary practical means by which the church is designed to care for you and influence your life. And this is what I mean. If you are a part of a church and in a small group, then you will see ministry and illness. You will increase in your resistance to sin. There will be a flourishing of healthy marriage. There will be increased hospitality. There will be a flourishing of love for strangers. There will be greater freedom from greed and love of money. There will be increased understanding and wisdom. All these things that the writer of Hebrews has described takes place in those small group communities. 
And so what we're doing at Lakeside and what we're doing now in terms of small group discipleship is we have all of those opportunities that I mentioned on the website on Friday or on Facebook on Friday. Uh, small groups will begin meeting together again. Uh, you should hear from a small group leader hopefully soon uh, and talk about maybe getting together for a social gathering uh, before Thanksgiving. And then our groups will begin meeting in Thanksgiving. And if you haven't been part of a small group before, you can contact the office and contact Allison and she'll get you in touch with a small group. But within those small groups then, we have the Oreo effect, taking the promises and the doctrine of God and bounding them within the context of fellowship and community to produce faithful and effective Christian life. And so we're going to continue to engage with you as uh, you know, participants in our church here. We're going to continue to reach out to you to want you to engage in small group. We're going to be identifying uh, small group leaders and our existing leaders will be identifying new leaders to create new groups. And what we want to do is want leaders who can lead groups and then tie them together uh, with people who have gifts of hospitality uh, and of shepherding so that you might have a group leader who's there to lead the group, but it's led in your home because you have the hospitality gifts. And so this is how we're doing things at Lakeside. And this is how we sort of emphasize this Oreo effect of small groups. And I want to just keep bringing you back to the Oreo cookie. Because again, I think if I can get you thinking about Oreo cookies and how tasty they are, then I might get you interested subconsciously in joining our life groups. And so, as I said, you'll hear from your life group leader shortly. And uh, there'll be opportunity for uh, the life groups again to start around Thanksgiving time. If you're not in a group, contact the office. And uh, just remember the book of Hebrews and remember this encouragement that the truths of God uh, work together and are bounded by fellowship together in small groups. And the outpouring of that or the outflow of that is the tasty, satisfying Christian life in the middle. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this book of Hebrews and his, the writer there who continually um, in, encourages us and exhorts us and spurs us towards meeting together the remembrance that we are not meant to live the Christian life alone, uh, but in community, and that you work out your promises by the body of Christ and through the means of your church. And so as we isolate ourselves or act independently apart from the church, it's not surprising that we find ourselves missing out on your promises and wondering uh, why we don't have the satisfaction and the joy that we would expect from the Christian life. So gather us together again, especially in this time of COVID, We'll be gathering together in different means, sometimes in people's houses, sometimes at the church where there's more space to spread out, maybe even by Zoom. And, uh, but Lord, however you gather us, make us faithful and uh, give us joy in encur encouraging one another and spurring one another on in the truths of living out the Christian life. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.